This is episode 275 of the Prepper Website Podcast, where I connect you with resources that will help you live a more self-reliant life. Today's articles are Composting 101, Easy Compost Making and Troubleshooting Tips, and No Gas and No Electricity, How to Cook Indoors Without Smoke. Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is an audible version with some commentary of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website a daily curation of preparedness information. These articles are some of the best of the best that have been recently posted on PrepperWebsite.com. All article links and show information can be found on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 275. Hey, yesterday I talked a little bit about using pool water for uh, emergencies and, and you know running those through your water filters. You know, I looked up Berkey, Berkey water filters, and they do say that you can use pool water in an emergency through a Berkey water uh, filter, but you would be really uh, shortening the life of your filters. And I just don't know if that would be worth it. I mean, I guess in an emergency, uh, you know, you do whatever you have to do, but, uh, you know, they really wouldn't last that long. And there are some other water filters that just did not recommend it. Uh, You could use it, but again, you were really... Uh, shortening the life of your water filter. So you can do that. Um, just FYI, if you are ever in that emergency situation, but it's always better, I think, just to have your water storage and, and be prepared that way. All right, so let's go ahead and get into our first article of the podcast. It comes to us from commonsensehomesteading.com. I know a lot of you are new to the podcast um, and some of you are new to preparedness. Some of y'all are very experienced in preparedness. Um, But, you know, wherever you are in your walk, you probably are thinking about gardening or you are gardening. Uh, You might be right in the middle of a gardening project. And one of the things that you definitely want to do if you are gardening is to try to keep a compost pile. And compost piles are very easy to to make and to keep, and they provide a lot of benefits. And so this this one article here, I think, is, is very valuable out there. So again, it comes to us from commonsensehomesteading.com, and the title is Composting 101, Easy Compost Making and Troubleshooting Tips. Let's go ahead and get right into this one. What is composting? Composting breaks down organic material to rich, dark soil. If it rots, it can compost, although some materials require special handling, which we'll cover later in the post. The simplest way to compost is to stack everything in a pile and leave it for a couple of years. But there are methods you can use to keep things tidier and make compost faster. Composting does not have to be messy or stinky or too much work. In this article, we'll cover how to compost, what to compost, compost bins, and troubleshooting tips for common compost problems. So why compost? We generate 26 million tons of food scraps each year. Our landfills are overloaded and 20-30% to of what goes into landfills is food scraps and yard waste. Meanwhile, food growers often fork out serious cash for fertilizer and other soil improvements. Composting reduces the load on landfills and turns garbage into awesome, deep, rich soil. If you pay extra for yard waste pickup, you can save money on fertilizer and hauling fees. Composting also reduces transport costs less waste hauling, and it reduces methane emissions. Properly built compost piles don't outgas like landfills, and it lowers your carbon footprint. 
Compost is like black gold for your soil. The worms, bacteria, and fungi break down your composting material to create humus. Adding humus to regular soil enriches its ability to retain moisture. Humus also adds nutrients which reduces or eliminates the need for other fertilizers. Humus-rich soil makes your crops more resilient and productive. If you aren't composting, you should be. Simple compost pile ingredients. When you are in town, in the suburbs, or in the country, you can compost. To make a home compost pile, you only need three things. Browns, greens, and moisture. Browns equal high carbon ingredients such as leaves, branches, and sawdust. Your browns are the base that absorbs the ooze and the odors as the green squishy bits break down. Think of it like bedding in an animal stall. Browns also add bulk to the pile and make a good chow for helpful fungi. The greens equal high nitrogen ingredients such as grass clippings, vegetable waste, fruit scraps, and coffee grounds. These are the jam in your jelly roll, the catalyst that gets your pile hot and steamy. Too much and your pile can get slimy or moldy. Think mounded grass clippings. Get the right amount and it will keep your compost pile rotting at a high speed. Moisture is just the right amount. You're aiming for damp, spongy consistency into the pile. Too much water and it can get anaerobic and stinky. Too little and the material won't break down. Turning your compost pile gets oxygen into the whole pile and ensures your browns and greens are well mixed. If you want compost fast, turning helps. If composting speed is not an issue, don't worry about it. Note, if you set up a system of three bins like are shown below, you can stockpile browns in one of the bins, use another bin as your active bin, filling it with greens as they become available, and browns from your stash. The third bin can be left to age. Planet Natural has a handy chart that lists the carbon to nitrogen ratio of many common compost ingredients here. So there's a link there and again there's pictures that you can check out here. What do I need to start composting? The simplest compost pile you can make is just a pile. All you need is a container to gather kitchen scraps for composting inside and a fork and rake to keep your pile turned and tidy outside. Keep some leaves or other dry yard waste and bury your scraps in the pile. Add water with a garden hose or bucket if it seems too dry. Remember, we're looking for damp sponge consistency. Shoot for roughly equal amounts of browns and greens and use your fork to turn it every one to two weeks. Aim to get your pile at least three foot by three foot by three foot so there's enough material for it to heat up in the, in, in the middle and not dry out right away. You can cover your compost bin with a tarp to keep it moist in dry areas or keep it a bit more dry if it rains too much. Making finished compost takes anywhere between two months or to two years. Two months is possible with frequent turning and the right mix of materials. Two years is more likely if you simply build your pile and let it sit. One of the readers also noticed on Facebook that it's a good idea to place your pile where you can easily mow around it. All those nutrients in the compost can also spark rampant grass and weed growth around the pile. Another option is to mulch heavily around the pile or set it up on a hard surface such as pavement. You may have noticed old sunflower stalks sticking out of our compost bin. We keep these around for the birds to perch on. There aren't many trees in the yard yet. 
We also use them as a stash of browns and for cleaning out our compost buckets when, empty, when we empty them in the compost bins. So easy steps to making compost at home. Pick a dry, shady spot outside that's big enough for your compost bin. If you live in a colder region, full sun is fine, but in warmer areas, it may cause your pile to dry out too fast. If you can reach your pile with a garden hose, so much the better, since you may need to add water. Get a good shovel and garden fork for turning. Build a compost bin using old pallets or scrap lumber, or purchase a ready-made compost bin and place it outside. Purchase or repurpose an indoor compost container to gather food waste. We keep an old yogurt container in a corner of the kitchen sink and dump that into a five-gallon bucket on the porch. We place shredded newspaper, dry leaves, or other browns in the bottom of the big bucket to soak up the liquid from the greens. Outside, put a layer of browns in the bottom of your bins. Inside, start gathering kitchen scraps for greens. When your inside bin gets full, carry your scraps out and put them in your compost bin or pile. Bury your greens 10 inches into your brown to into your browns to avoid odors or layer your greens and browns finishing with a brown layer. Fork or mix the pile periodically. Continue adding to the pile. If possible, add in layers green and brown. Add water to keep the pile moist if needed. When the compost is black and looks mostly like soil, it's ready to be used in your garden. So building a pallet compost bin. For a single bin, use four pallets to make the sides and screw them into pieces of 2x4 or 4x4 to stabilize the corners. If you like, you can attach the pallet design or designate it as the front so that it is removable. If you plan on regularly turning the pile, drive a sturdy fence post in at each front corner of your bin, leaving just enough room between the fence post and the bin for your front cover pallet. With this setup, you can slide the front pallet out of the way to turn the pile instead of unscrewing it. If you have more waste and lots of room, you can create three bins with 10 pallets. As mentioned above, this gives you the option to keep one bin for brown storage, one active bin, and one aging bin. There's pre-made compost bins or barrels as well. You can also purchase bins and tanks for residential backyards where an open compost bin would be a problem. These ensure the materials mix well and hides the mix. Some of the top-rated composters on Amazon are the cutest composter in the world mini composting tumbler bin, 50-gallon wheeled compost tumbler, dual-body tumbling compost, and the Yimbly tumbler composter. (laughs) Can I compost indoors? Yes, you can compost inside. There are specialized products such as the Food Cycle Platinum Indoor Food Recycler, that helps speed composting and control odors. But one of the easiest way to compost inside is with vermicomposting. Vermicomposting, or composting with a worm bin, is well suited to indoor composting because the worms need controlled temperatures to stay active. They chow down on the same types of food that are safe to put in regular compost. See vermicomposting, how to start an earthworm bin for composting for more information. What is safe to compost? So for greens, vegetables and fruit leftovers, scraps and peelings, tea leaves and coffee grounds, including tea bags and coffee filters, crushed eggshells, grass cuttings and weeds. Avoid weed seeds unless you know your compost pile will get hot enough to make them sterile. That's 120 to 170 degrees Fahrenheit for at least three days. Houseplants, 
hair and fur, and manure, we'll see below. For browns, paper, including paper towels and newspaper, cardboard, leaves from maples, oaks, and other trees, not evergreens, woody prunings, straw, hay, wool, sawdust, and pets bedding. Wood ash, not too much as it can mess up the pH of the compost. Liquid, gray water, wastewater from non-toilet use may be added to a compost pile, provided non-toxic biodegradable cleaners are used. No bleach. And urine, also acts as a green to stimulate your compost. So don't compost these items. Any metals, steel, iron, aluminum, etc. Plastics. Even if they are fully biodegradable, we don't recommend them for compost that will be used in your food garden. Dust and debris from vacuums, medications of any kind, any chemicals or fuels, pet waste such as dog and cat poop, which may contain parasites or pathogens that could transfer to humans, meats, dairy, fats and oil, fish may smell and attract unwanted pets, pests, coal or charcoal ash, may have residue that are harmful to plants, yard trimmings, hay, or other agricultural products contaminated with herbicides or pesticides, black walnut leaves and twigs, which contain a chemical that suppresses plant growth, and disease or insect-infested plants. Note that some of these items may be safely composted in small amounts in a hot compost pile, such as meat or pet waste, but are best avoided by the beginning composter. To compost with caution. Compost these organic materials with caution. Evergreen needles. Because of their acidity, evergreen needles can throw off the pH of your compost pile. It's better to leave them as mulch under the trees or use them as mulch around acid-loving plants like blueberries. Animal manure. Animal manure can harbor pathogenic bacteria like E. coli, so hot composting with a two-bin composting system is best. One bin is active, the other is curing. C. Using manure and compost as nutrient sources for fruit and vegetable crops and composting chicken manure for more information. Use deep bedding methods to begin composting manure in the animal shelter. Human waste. Like animal manure, human waste can harbor pathogens. The Human Manure Handbook is an excellent resource for those who wish to capture and reuse this waste system. Dead animals and or animal parts and bones. Hot composting of carcasses is now the recommended disposal method for animal mortalities as proper hot composting poses less risk to water supplies and burying. See composting animal mortalities for detailed information on this disposal method. Dead animals attract maggots and other scavenging animals and will smell horrible if not properly composted. So please make sure to follow recommended procedures. Then black water or toilet wastewater. Like other human waste, black water requires hot composting or more extensive natural filtration as viruses, bacteria, and medications go through our system and could be present in the water. So composting questions and answers. How long does it take to make compost? A compost pile or bin could be ready to use in as little as four to six weeks with regular turning and the right mix of greens and browns. Layered piles that are left without turning may take up to two years or more. How do I know my compost is done? The compost is done when the compost material at the bottom, the humus, is dark rich color. In a tumbling composter or well-turned pile, 
all or more of the material may be humus. The unfinished top layer can be put back in the pile or added to another bin as the bottom layer. Note the black layers in the bottom of the compost in this picture below. Watch out for steam. If your compost is still steaming and actively heating, the compost can burn your plants. It's best to wait until compost has aged enough to stop steaming before applying to your garden. Even if the color is dark and most of the material is broken down, there, this is where a two to three bin system is handy. We keep one bin active and allow the others to age. The compost smells is that normal. It is normal for compost to have some odor. After all, it is decomposing. The odor of a healthy compost pile should be earthy, like the damp, musty odor of a pile of rotting leaves. If your compost pile stinks, you need an intervention. First, make sure you have enough browns to soak up excess moisture and balance out your greens. Lack of browns is the number one reason for stinky compost. Next, do some turning to make sure your greens and browns are well mixed and you don't have pockets of rotting ooze. Check your moisture levels. Too dry, unlikely if it's stinky but possible, add water. Too wet, turn more frequently and add dry browns if needed. There is some mold in my compost, is that okay? Mold is completely normal in compost bins and is especially helpful in the breakdown of woody material like wood chips and tough plant stalks. The less you turn your compost, the more likely you are to see large spans of spreading mold. If you are sensitive to mold, wear a mask when turning your compost or enlist a friend to turn it for you. To reduce the mold bloom, turn your pile more frequently and make sure the moisture levels don't get too high. Don't forget to aim for a good balance of greens and browns. Can I keep adding things to the same compost barrel? Yes, it even has a name. It's called layering. Ideally, we want to build up alternating layers of greens and browns as we build our pile. If you don't turn your pile, the bottom layers will finish first. At that point, you can peel back the top layers or remove the finished compost or humus from the bottom and then return the rest of the pile to continue composting. In a composter tumbler, you'll probably want to rake or sift out the leaf finished pieces when you harvest your compost. The same goes for a pile that is frequently turned. If something isn't broken down, put it back in the pile for another round of composting. Ideally, it's best to have a system of two or more bins so you can let one pile age while the other one is active. There are a lot of ants or other insects in the compost. Is that okay? A healthy compost pile is teeming with life, including bugs of various types such as sow bugs, pill bugs, millipedes, slugs, earwigs, beetles, centipedes, and more. It's like a high-rise bug hotel. When you dig into turn your compost, you should see a wide variety of small critters running for cover. If your pile gets dominated by one species, such as ants taking over and turning the pile into a giant farm, odds are that something is out of balance. For instance, an abundance of ants means your pile is too dry. Try turning your pile more frequently to disrupt their nesting habits and keep a closer watch on moisture levels and your balance of greens and browns. If you have chickens, allowing your chickens access to your compost pile will take down the bug population and provide some great high-protein chicken chow. So are you ready to get composting? I hope this guide helps you to understand the basics of home composting. It's time for more people to start using the resources at hand to build better soil and grow healthier crops. If you have any composting tips you'd like to share or questions you'd like to ask, 
please leave a comment and let us know. All right, I just want to give a, just a couple of um, you know pieces of advice here. The tumblers will work. Like if you go buy a tumbler from the you know from Home Depot or order one from Amazon or whatever, they will work. But you just you're going to have to really keep an eye on it. If you're more along the lines as you know, I want to make a compost pile and kind of just leave it, set it and forget it type thing. Then uh, you know one of those compost uh, bins that you buy might not be the answer for you because you you do need to check the moisture levels on a regular basis and keep them turned. The pallet system that's an easy way to go. And if so, if you're looking to make one, um, you know you can save a lot of money doing it that way. The other thing that I wanted to add is um, when you get to the point when you're ready to pull some of uh, your finished compost out, I have seen in the past people make. A screen. So, uh, making a screen out of really um, small—I guess I don't want to say chicken wire because chicken wire is a little bit—you uh, know—the holes are a little bit thicker. But you need to get some kind of screen that's—you know—has smaller holes in it, and then they put that over a frame, and so they kind of s- sift the compost through that. So any big pieces get uh, left behind. So maybe I've, I've seen this like over a wheelbarrow. They're putting compost, they're shaking it down, and so this, the big stuff that's left behind gets thrown into the other uh, uh, compost bin that's getting ready to get started, right? And so that's an easy way to, to sift through it and filter it. And so you're basically making a sifter when you do that. So I uh, just wanted to kind of throw that out. I've seen that before uh, on uh, videos and posts that we've linked on Prepper website. Okay, guys, that's over at commonsensehome.com, and uh, like always, I'll link to it in the show notes. All right, this next article is from askaprepper.com. And this, this article, I think, is uh, it's valuable because a lot of the times, you know, so many people, when we talk about cooking, uh, we talk about survival food, we talk about our food pantries, we talk about all that kind of stuff, but we don't always talk about cooking. I mean, that is one of the lessons that I do have in the e-course that I send out when you sign up for the, the Prepper website email list. Um, but not everybody, you know, talks about that. So I was really glad to see this article, and one reason why I wanted to to read it on the podcast, uh, just because you know I think it needs to be uh, at least discussed, right? And to give you some ideas, um, because what you find, like I said, is you either your the grid hasn't gone down, and you have your electric stove, you know, hopefully, or you still have your gas stove. Or a lot of the times it's you're cooking outside over some type of fire. But there are other means of cooking uh, that, you know, that you can have and they don't cost a lot of money. Um, you can put a little bit of investment into it. In fact, some of these are very, very cheap if you, uh, you want to go the do-it-yourself route. So uh, that's why I want to go ahead and read this one. So we'll get into this one. Again, it's called No Gas, No Electricity, How to Cook Indoors Without Smoke. And it's from askaprepper.com. Let's go ahead and start reading this one. In a survival situation, there are dozens of ways to cook outdoors without power. Solar ovens, clay ovens, and open fire cooking are just a few. There are many more. But what happens when the grid is down and you need to stay indoors? Anything from a hurricane or extreme cold snap to a longer term emergency like a pandemic or nuclear fallout situation can force you to do your cooking inside. Most long-term storage preparedness foods like white rice and beans require cooking. How do you feed your family while at the same time keeping them safe indoors? Okay, the first way is propane stove. 
Electric stoves are more common these days, and propane stoves are even banned in many apartment complexes. But if you happen to have a propane stove, you don't need electricity to cook. Even propane stoves with a built-in electronic igniter can be lit with a match or your trusty Zippo. Most domestic propane stoves have a fume hood that helps dissipate toxic fumes or gases produced during cooking. Many families don't bother to use them. Growing up, ours never worked and our house was naturally well ventilated enough that it never mattered. In a major crisis, hoods with a powered extractor fans probably won't be working anyway. Keep in mind that any stove that's burning fuel needs a good air supply. If there isn't enough oxygen in the air, the fuel won't burn properly, and that releases deadly carbon monoxide gas. Always use stoves in an area that has good ventilation. This can be a problem if there's a fallout hazard, so when you're preparing fallout rooms or shelters, make sure there's a good, properly filtered air intake in a location that will let you cook safely. Wood stoves or fireplaces. We often forget that electricity is a relatively recent invention and that our ancestors cooked in fireplaces and on wood stoves for centuries. A Dutch oven is just that, an oven. It can be used to bake cookies on a wood stove, trapping the heat inside the cast iron and creating an oven from just about any heat source. While most people no longer have the experiment at hand to simmer a stew hung over their fireplace, it's easy enough to bend a wire coat hanger into a skewer and cook simple foods over the fire. If you have an old fireplace with cooking hardware like a spit, grill, or swing trivet, overhaul it and get it into working order. If you don't have these items, look at installing them. Wrapping food in aluminum foil in the fireplace or wood stove is also a good option. Alcohol stoves. Small camp stoves that burn denatured alcohol can be used indoors. The denatured alcohol used in these stoves burns clean and should be safe to use indoors. You can make your own stove out of soda cans and a little ingenuity, or they're readily available from camp stove retailers. And that is uh, a good option for you there. Uh, canned heat or a sterno. Often used to heat food indoors on buffet tables, canned heat is sold under the brand name sterno. Sterno cans contain an alcohol-based fuel that burns cleanly, and individual canisters can burn for up to two hours for continuous heating. Since they're designed to burn mostly unattended for the entire duration of an event, they're a good option for slowly simmering a small pot of stew or beans. Keep in mind that each canister is small and can only heat a small pot. If you have a large pot, use four or five of the heat cans to bring it up to temperature and keep the lid on to retain heat. The main benefits of canned heat are that it's specifically designed for use indoors for heating and cooking food. They can safely be used just about anywhere, assuming you have a stable surface that won't tip over. They're easy to store, portable, and a great all-around solution for indoor cooking. And uh, I'll just let you know that if you have uh, like Sam's or Costco, uh, you can go and buy uh, a nice size pack of these for a decent amount of money. If you buy them individually, they can kind of, kind of get expensive. But um, you know, if you have a way to get into Sam's or uh, you know Costco, you can you can buy uh, you know a nice little decent pack to have uh, you know stocked up. Okay, your next option is candles. Cooking over a candle is not a lot different from cooking over a sterno canned heat canister. All you need is the ability to suspend the food over the heat source. Larger candles with multiple wicks might be a better choice if you're trying to boil water. 
Choose a candle that burns relatively cleanly, like all-natural beeswax candles. Avoid scented, heavily synthetic, or dyed candles. The more stuff that is in a candle beside the wax fuel, the worse it will be for indoors air pollution when you're cooking in an emergency. Then hand warmers. Inside MREs, there's a chemical heat packet that can be used to warm food. For example, an MRE might include a vacuum-sealed, shelf-stable chicken breast, and along with it, there would be a heating pouch that uses a chemical reaction to warm the food. It works like snap-activated hand warmer packets. While I wouldn't feel safe putting hand warmer packets directly into my food, I would wrap a can of SpaghettiOs in hand warmers and have a reasonably hot meal in minutes. Flameless Stoves One manufacturer called Magic Cook makes a flameless stove that uses a water-based chemical reaction to create heat to cook food. Simply add water to the heat pack to generate sustained heat for 15 to 20 minutes to warm food. A big advantage of chemical stoves like this is they don't release carbon monoxide, but some kinds may release flammable hydrogen, so be careful. Once you're done cooking, the heat pack has absorbed the water and the reaction is complete. The heat pack can be disposed of in a normal household trash can. This type of flameless stove is convenient to have on hand for a few uses while the power is out. But since it requires expensive specialized heat packets, it's not as good not as good of a choice for the long term. That said, most emergencies are day-to-day emergencies where the power is out for a day or less. Then there's car lighter stoves. So while you may not have electricity in your house, your car's battery is full of juice. There's one manufacturer that makes a small heating element that plugs into a car car cigarette lighter. Keep in mind that this will kill your car battery quickly and you should turn on your car engine while it's in the garage. Car lighter stoves are best used in situations where you can actually run the car. If you're on the road during an emergency and you need an indoor way to cook inside your car for any reason, this is a reasonable option. Uh, Just a couple of things. You know, the first comment here, someone was talking about using a thermos uh, to uh, a thermos bottle to help uh, cook food. Like if you have rice and beans and those types of things, Um, even, you know, a Yeti. Uh, one of the big Yeti cups like everybody has, or I wouldn't, at this point, I wouldn't buy Yetis anymore. I would just go to Walmart. Walmart has the the big Yeti size, you know, looking, uh, I call them fake Yetis, right? But uh, they work just as well. And they even have bigger versions of it, like 64 ounces uh, there. And they stay very, very hot. Uh, if you've ever used one of those types of vacuum uh, vacuum sealed or, you know, uh, cups, you know that if you're not careful, you'll burn your mouth. So that gave me that idea of using a thermos or even possibly a Yeti uh, to to help cook food that uh, there used to be a lot of talk in the preparedness community. And sometimes you do see articles on it on uh, the Wonder Boxes, right? And so basically it was, you know, this material, so, you know, sewed material. And I really don't know what it is. I never had one. But uh, you, you know, heat up, you bring whatever it is to boiling and then you set it in this box and you cover it up and you basically it uh, provides an insulator. So you can put a Dutch oven or a pot or whatever in there and then you insulate it with this Wonder Box or the material in this Wonder Box. And uh, you can do uh, you can finish off the cooking that way so you're not using precious fuel. You can also probably get away with um, mimicking that by using uh, an, an ice chest in some way if you're able to put in stuff that can uh, 
uh, can insulate it, right? And so if you're using maybe like blankets and different things like that, and you're able to drop a, a hot uh, pot in there and, and then close the lid and, and let it cook for a while. And, uh, you know, I know that I've seen articles like that before in the past about cooking, um, you know, cooking like potatoes, like a lot of potatoes in a, in a, in an ice chest like that with hot water and potatoes. So, you know, that's, that's possible to do as well. So, uh, you know, maybe we need to look up some of those, uh, and, and find those maybe for like the Friday podcast, uh, and, uh, you know, talk a little bit about those because those are some real ingenious ways to, uh, to, to conserve fuel if you are really in an emergency situation. So I will, uh, I will try to find those articles and see if I can uh, come up with something for the Friday podcast. All right, guys. Well, that's it for episode 275. Again, like always, these articles are going to be linked on the show notes. And so you can go directly to them. And they always have links. And uh, definitely, you know, the article here at askaprepper.com has 26 uh, comment or 29 comments that you can come check out. Hey guys, um, just uh, knowing that some of you on the East Coast are going to be hit by more snow, um, you know, keeping you in my thoughts and prayers. And then um, right before we got on to, uh, right before I got on to record the podcast, there was another explosion in Austin and uh, another bomb went off. And so um, again, crazy times. That's why we stay prepped into where. That's why we, we, um, that's why we do what we do, and uh, you know we're making sure that uh, we are ready for any kind of crisis, and our families are protected and safe. So uh, you know, keep safe out there, and uh, be be the light as uh, the world is getting crazier and crazier. Hey, if you haven't had a chance, love for you to come over to the Facebook group and join us over there, and I'd love to connect with you on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. With that, choose to live a more self-reliant life. Choose not to be so dependent on the government grid or the grind. Until tomorrow, stay prepped and aware. Peace.